Yeah, on. Or really, I, I I feel like I should be starting the episode with. You know, hey, you know, I, I was looking at some of the um, feedback from our last episode sent through our, the internets, through the social media. medias, yeah, through the interwebs, and um, people really liked our presidential impressions. I did you know that we. Very just unintentionally, we, I did some Obama and you did some Bill Clinton. Did you know that? It's you actually a pretty underrated Obama. Impression. Well, I've been it's pretty I, good. I've been asked to, I've been asked to sort of reprise it um, and encore that. And, and I, I was kind of like, well, how am I going to do that? It was not like a planned. So I, I figured maybe I'd just like tie it into the episode. Well, should we so, do like a conversation between Clinton and Obama? Well, let, let me, let me, let, I'm, I'm going to tie it into, to, to, I'm going to try to tie it into today's episode. So here you go. You ready? Okay. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, there was a time when I was so brokenhearted. Uh, love wasn't much, uh, but a friend of mine. Uh, the tables have turned uh, because me and them and ways have parted. Uh, that kind of love uh, was the killing kind. I feel like uh, let me here. Let me bring let me bring something in. Uh, now, now, uh, listen. Uh, all I want. Uh, is someone I can't resist. Uh, I know all I need to know, by the way, uh, that I got kissed. What do you think? Uh, I was, you know, Barack, I, I was crying when I yeah. met you. And what do you now? I'm just now I'm dying to forget you. you that, a, it's not a good impression, but no, I think it's good. I think it's uh, good. Well, you know, tried to. Try to tie it in, and then and then you you did a Bill Clinton where I it was very funny. You did the uh, you were making fun of him for when he said what is is or whatever. yeah. How about this? How about this one? I could tell you what I did not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, but I was crying when I met you, and I am dying to forget you. There you go. I mean, yeah, this is the love letter to Monica. You know, <laughs> you know what's funny? It's like we plan these things. We really don't. We've mentioned this many times in the podcast. So I make I make little notes. What's the theme of today's episode? What does that word say right there? Uh, well, your writing's not too good, but it's terrible. does it say change or chance? Change. Change. Okay. Who else had the theme of change? Uh, candidate Barack oh, Obama. Yeah, we can Remember? we change. We change. What was it? Everything we, was change. Yeah, change. Uh, vote for change. Yeah, change. Uh, yeah. So amazingly enough, we've stumbled upon 
the theme of today's episode, which is I thought maybe we were going to talk and be talking about, uh, was it uh, Gary Busey <laughs> or uh, Meatloaf? <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Fun, so very funny guy, Barack Obama. Funny, great, good timing. Good delivery on that guy. Oh, yeah. Very good delivery. And, you know, he was a change agent when he ran. And yes. that is the theme of. Tonight's episode. Where are we at? T seventy with seventy one, seventy two. This would be seventy two, I believe. T people change for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons one person might change. Whether you're changing your personality, changing your look, changing your image, changing your approach. A lot of different reasons to change. Well, with Aerosmith's "Get a Grip," there was certainly change, and we will talk and can talk about. Not as much the changes because they're evident in the music, but why did they change? Because you got to always look at that. What's the motive, especially when you're looking at something creative versus something commercial? Well, it's funny. That's a great theme and a very uh, relevant theme. The theme I had coming into this was hired help. That was my theme. So, (laughs) yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Once it's very relevant as well. (laughs) First. We got to do what we always do about this time. And that is find out what has been spinning around in your turntable as we take episode 72 round and round. All right, T, three albums that have been suiting your musical family. (laughs) Family. That have been suiting your family. Yeah. Maybe that too. uh, Yeah. They've been listening to mostly uh, K pop and, uh, you know, (laughs) crap on YouTube. So, exactly. That's what's rounded around for my family. How about you? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) All right. Suiting your musical fancy. T, what do you got? Well, there have been a couple of new releases. I didn't realize it came out a couple months ago, but I just got it. And that's Johnny Marr's latest. And it's called Fever Dreams Parts 1 through 4. Maybe he did this EP thing that a lot of people are doing now where you release sections of an album as EPs in advance and then you release it all as one album. But uh, haven't heard it yet. I always have these albums on Round and Round. It's like, I can't wait to hear this. Haven't heard it yet. I'm going to actually start trying to listen to these beforehand so I can give a take. But yeah, I mean, I thought Round and Round was three albums you've been listening to. (laughs) For you, it's always like, oh, here's what I bought and I'll listen to, you know, next summer. Yeah. Here's what I'm meaning to listen to. Yeah. But, you know, it's Johnny Marr. It's got to be pretty good, right? The second same boat uh, is the Band of Horses, Um, who I'm a fan of. Their last couple. They they took a, a bit of a hiatus, right? And their last couple albums pre-hiatus weren't great, but their first couple were excellent. And uh, you know, big big fan of that band. They're um very interesting and uh, saw them live a couple times. They're really good live. So looking forward to hearing that. Here's one I actually did listen to this week, Nubs. And that is uh Mastodon's uh, Hushed and Grim. You know, digging into that, still trying to figure it out. What do you Fan. think? What are, what are early returns? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, double LP, I like the approach. Um, the, the, the songs are certainly, um, thoughtful and obviously a bit longer. You're talking, you know, six minute songs on average here, which kind of lead to the double album. But yeah, I think, um, I don't think it's their best, but I, I think they continue to evolve and prove not just their uh, approach works, but that they're a very thoughtful band. And I think that they're, you know, they're a band that's trying to sort of position themselves to be around for a while. And I think that this probably 
while it's not, I don't think their best record, it probably does. Um, I think it will lead to them sort of being a band that, that sustains and sticks around for a while. So that's what's round and round for me nub, or at least, uh, you know, about to be round and round for me. What's round and round for you, buddy. Three new records as well. It is like sort of a new release season and we're approaching the commercial entity theme of tonight's show, uh, known as record store day. So it seems like there's a lot of new release activities oh, yeah. going they're still on. they're still doing that huh i guess it's online yeah. now isn't it though mostly well i hopefully this year it's moving back to a little bit more of a traditional deal because the online thing was lame but um i guess one repeat from yours is the new urge overkill we which i uh finally got a copy of i think it rocks pretty well i think it sounds great i think it's it's better than i would have expected when i heard that Urge might be working on a new album. So I, I think it's quite good. The George Michael cover is <laughs> fantastic. So yeah, so you know, and for more on Urge Overkill, go check out the interview we did with Eddie the King Roser yes. on a previous episode. Second is The Tipping Point, the new record from Tears for Fears. I think any Tears for Fears album you need to spend some time with. Uh, it, it, this is not songs from the big chair. It does not just come out and grab you from the start. But I really want to dig into the production and learn a little bit more about where they were going from a compositional standpoint. It, it sounds a little festival rocky to me right off the bat. Just like, oh, interesting, you know, everything's got to have the big backbeat and everything. Hmm. I have high hopes. I'll continue to try and dig into it. And then lastly, of course, one of my favorite bands, that's not 30 years old. And that is ghost with the new album Impera. that the new single I do like. Oh, nice. And just got my copy of it and have been enjoying it. I love Ghost. I love the whole thing, dude. I love the Papa Emerus thing. I, just, I think the whole thing is awesome. I really want to go see them. And you know, I've never seen them live. Yeah, that would be worth worth the trip for sure. Would you go to a Ghost show? Oh, yeah. yeah. Would you? Okay, cool. Cool. All right. All right, let's turn our attention to Brian Johnson. Let's go with some Nerdy Deeds Thunder Cheap. You want some Nerdy Deeds? Yeah. You want some Nerdy Deeds? All right, Get a Grip was the 11th studio album from Aerosmith it was released in April of 1993 on Geffen records, a familiar landing point for the band. Uh, get a grip was quite the album, but it was not the beginning of the band's return to commercial success. It almost was the end of it. So maybe some nineties kids thought that get a grip was like the return of Aerosmith. It very much was not. Mm -hmm. It followed Permanent Vacation and Pump, which are undoubtedly the return to giant, bigger than ever commercial success for the band. You know, this band later had an album called Nine Lives. I think they've had more than that. Get a Grip was a really important life for this band. And um, we'll get into the how and the why and the imagery that's so important to this album. It, it, one of the key members is the producer of the album, which is Bruce Fairbairn, a, a, a guy who actually passed away a few years later, right after he was done working with the band. Yes. If you can believe it. Very but, mysteriously. Passed yeah. Away. Yeah. It was kind of mysterious. He is such a key to this whole thing, the whole sound, the whole polish that everything that I know you'll talk a lot about that you already referenced. Bruce Fairbairn is super, super important. But with Aerosmith, one thing you have to give them credit, and I think we'll talk a lot about, you know, the goods and bads of this band, and there's goods and there's bads, is the stability of their lineup. 
Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, Brad Whitford, Tom Hamilton, Joy Kramer. Now, they were not always Aerosmith. There were some changes there in the 80s. Things got a little shaky. But these five are the original lineup. They're still the lineup. And, you know, they've had quite a bit of stability in that area. Now, these five are not playing every instrument on every song (laughs) at all. And uh, we'll get into that. Because there's some moments where it's like, I don't know that that's Joey Kramer playing drums. And some moments where you wonder if it's actually a take where they're playing the whole line or if they're playing it note by note, because it's so incredibly polished. But those are the five people that make up the personnel of the band. There were seven singles from Get a Grip. Seven. A huge player in this whole thing is MTV. But again, Get a Grip was not Aerosmith's intro to MTV at all. It was their intro to Alicia Silverstone videos, but it was not the intro to MTV. Permanent Vacation and Pump had legendary videos. You have to remember Aerosmith's big return was the Walk This Way collaboration with Run DMC, which was a huge MTV moment. Some people say it's like the most important moment in the history of MTV. So this elevated a lot of where the band already was and the Alicia Silverstone videos certainly elevated a number of things. And she, um, she did like four Aerosmith videos, clueless. And then this movie about like stalking a married guy and like, didn't she like kill his wife in the movie? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like peak, peak Silverstone definitely during this time. Right. And that was it. I mean, that was kind of her thing. Right. I don't don't know. what. Yeah. Yeah. She did career wise, you know, yeah. the, the, the Aerosmith videos were a big part of it. They were huge. They were huge. So the first single living on the edge was followed by eat the rich. Then came the crying, amazing, crazy thing. Crying then amazing. Actually fever was released as a promo Dude, single. I tried. Uh, did you try to find the SNL sketch about that? Yeah. I mean, we were definitely going to talk tr- about it. You I can't tried, find old SNL stuff. You, well, you can find a lot of it. There's dude. I, I tried so hard. Cause it's a hilarious sketch where is it? Adam Sandler's doing Steven Tyler and crazy, amazing crying all sounded so much the same to people that they did a sketch where it was like one of those compilation, like time life, you know, uh, CD, um, parodies. And every song was like crying, amazing, crying, crying, or, amazing crazy crying crazy and and then he would just sing those words to like the same tune it was very funny and i wanted to i wanted to actually play it on this today but i can't find the damn thing anywhere it's like yeah it's like the one thing i searched high and low on the interwebs at youtube and couldn't find <laughs> it was back when snl was funny and then when they were willing to poke fun at people which they really aren't anymore it's all gotten very oh, it's like un, correct. Un, unwatchable now yeah, completely yeah. but it was one of those moments where snl when snl was at its best they were saying they were portraying what everybody was thinking and everybody at this point once amazing was released everybody was thinking god that these three songs are just the same song you know <laughs> and so they were really able to capture that right so it actually went crying amazing fever Shut Up and Dance was released as a single there in the UK, not in the US. And then Crazy wrapped up the singles. This was really across less than a year where these seven singles released worldwide. 
it, this all this all happened very very fast for the band. It's interesting to look at the sequence of singles. They did not lead with the uh, the thing that people remember the most, which is the ballads. They actually led with "Living on the Edge," and it was a huge hit and a really important song for the band. And we will certainly get into that in the track by track. Yeah, the the Bruce Fairburn thing. I just wanted to touch on it for a second because the guy's resume was amazing. You know, I mean, he did. He did the Razor's Edge by ACDC, which for them was kind of a post back in black reinvention or or reforming of their sound, which was really interesting. Van Halen Balance, again, something later in the career where they were trying to, I think, re, you kind of find their footing again in the studio. Um, but, you know, Slippery When Wet, New Jersey, Bon Jovi, the other Aerosmith records you mentioned, Elegantly Wasted in Excess, again, another comeback. So there's a little bit of a theme here of bands that are looking to sort of rebrand themselves uh, and, and, and reform their sound going to Fairburn to do this. I, I think, though, you, you can't list the guy's resume without noting the most important um, production contribution that he gave the gave the musical world, really, which was a Gorky Park. Gorky Park. <laughs> yeah, great. yeah, very relevant now. A Russian yeah. rock bang. Sidat da da da. Bang bang. Sidat da da. Bolshi bone bone. I wanna be day. Bang. <laughs> they were Russian, right? They were Russian. Yeah. Yeah. They, Gorky Park. Very timely. Yeah. But uh, anyone who doesn't know Gorky Park is very confused right now. Very well, confused. Remember the song Wind of Change by Scorpions? Yes. When yes. I was younger and heard that song, he references in the, like the opening verse, Gorky Park, down to Gorky Park. I thought he was talking about the band. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that one was confusing band. too. It was like, because was Winds of Change, was there an English version? And uh, is he doing, what is he doing? German? German. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think most Scorpions albums were recorded also in German or at least some okay. of them were. Yeah. I remember the first time hearing the German of Winds of Change. I was very confused. I, I, I was like nine years old and I thought I was having a stroke or something. I like, it like <laughs> it's like, what am I hearing? This is not, this is not normal. The only word you probably recognized was Gorky Park. Yeah, exactly. Right. So t- two important aspects of Get a Grip. Number one is it's incredible success. Sold more than 20 million copies, reached number one. I mean, the thing was just gigantic. It, won a couple Grammys it was voted album of the year by metal edge readers. It's kind of funny. And again, the MTV exposure was just saturated. I mean, it was, it was 1993 was a year of a lot of weird things in music, a lot of new things in music, but in the end it was sort of dominated by Aerosmith, which who would have ever guessed from here. It was sort of a downward fall. I'm sure we'll talk about it in some context, but Time finally seemed to catch up to Aerosmith. I know they had another couple hits later, but this was the last record that really did that kind of sales. Yeah, Steven Tyler. Steven Tyler kind of became a TV star after this, and you know they they still toured and stuff. But you know the the lucrative portion of his career uh, went in a different direction, didn't it? Well, it did. And once once one of the most classic American rock stars in music history becomes a judge on American Idol, like I stop paying attention. Yeah. I mean that that's a problem. Such a for big me. deal. Yeah. 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 That's a real problem. It doesn't mean I don't love the band's old music. It does mean that I'm done like with Aerosmith. And I think everybody in the known universe has gone to see Aerosmith. And I had already seen him several times by that point. But I was like, 
okay, that's it. Like we'll never go see that band again or purchase any of their new works because once you go on American Idol, you are, you are kind of done with me. You know, if you're a rock and roller, if you're a pop star, whatever, who cares? Yeah. Questionable move. Exactly. It is important to recognize who the band is from Boston. They are proud Bostonians, if you will. I didn't mention that when we got into the initial nerdy D's. One last thing. A lot of guests on Get a Grip. A lot of guests. Probably the most notable is Desmond Child, who we've referenced before on the podcast. This is one of the most commercially viable songwriters, you know, in music history. He's worked with a countless amount of incredibly commercial successful artists, but he's known for taking rock groups and rock artists and really polishing the hell out of them and making them incredibly commercially viable. Well, we just talked about him last episode with um, uh, Meatloaf uh, (laughs) on uh, uh, Bad Out Hall 3. He was the guy. He was the Jim Steinman on Bad Out Hall 3. Um, And let it be known too, Nub, that uh, Desmond Child wrote one of my favorite all-time songs, but certainly one of my favorite metal, if you will, songs of the uh, well, I don't know, late 80s, early 90s, whenever it came up, but a song called Giving Yourself Away by Rat. Uh, oh, you love my, that one. Great tune. And that was all Desmond Child. You could tell he wrote it, produced it, you know, basically yeah. executed it for them with the exception of Stephen Piercy's vocals. But uh, yeah, this guy knew how to make a hit. For sure. Other people who knew how to make a hit that appeared on the album include Don Henley, Lenny Kravitz, Jack Blades, and Tommy Shaw. If you bring Jack Blades to Tommy Shaw and you are trying to make a hit, especially in 1993. So that's a big part of the story here. Let's get into the Wonder Stories T so I can hear your get a grip story. Hit it. See, I don't know if you want to go in a Aerosmith direction or a get a grip direction or both, but... What's your wonder story? Um, well, I guess I'll kind of take it in both directions. But the first thing you got to start with, no question, is half of Steven Tyler's body holding his balls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we talk a lot about Alicia Silverstone's image on this album. Yeah. Very important. Yeah. The very first image of this album was Steven Tyler holding his own scrotum. This is the living on the edge video we're talking about. It, it was like he was half blacked out, half there with like a zipper going up the middle. And then he's like cupping his balls to, to, to sort of keep them from being uh, exposed on camera, which is a good idea. Right. But um, it was a little scary at first. It's like, you know, he's just got his junk in his hand. But technically, I guess it's half of his junk because the other half's not there. Half junk, half junk. Yeah. So he's got half of his junk in his hand, like doing the intro to this song. It's very strange. I think I had a few actual like nightmares about people standing there with half their body blacked out, holding their balls <laughs> and shaft balls and shaft. He, he's holding both. So, and yeah. then you go right from that again, MTV, such an important part of this whole story to Alicia Silverstone on a roller coaster. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And then all your nightmares about Steven Tyler turn into different types of dreams. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
That's right. Um, we talked about the SNL thing, but it is, if you ever get to find it's a very funny sketch and it was dead on in terms of, you know, all, all the songs sounding the same, the parody nature is great, but you got to bring up someone we've brought up in the past on the podcast, a character from our youth. And that is Mike G. You know, we talked about Mike G back in episode three, like, yeah, Beastie like Boys. three. Beastie Boys, so what you want? He he would go he would go ape shit when anybody played so what you want because he hated it. Giant Aerosmith fan, and we went to the concert with Mike G. And what I remember more than anything, the concert was fine. Whatever, I'm not a huge Aerosmith guy, and you know all that. But like, I remember Mike G. Like knew all the Get a Grip deep cuts. You know, oh, oh yeah, like, this song is called um, you know Flesh. Or this one's called gotta love it, you know, and Mike G like knew every word and every, it was like, wow. Cause back then, like we weren't really like all in on the album. It was kind of like you'd pick your tracks and you'd flip around and you do what, you know, normal 13 year olds do. But I remember being very impressed. It almost like me, it was like, man, I need to start listening to full albums. Cause I think it's cool that he knows all the deep cuts and, uh, so Mike G did not used to go bonkers when you played Aerosmith the way he went bonkers when you played the uh, Beastie Boys. But my wonder story actually is all about the concert. Oh, okay, so I, good. Well, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll leave that one to you. The The other thing that's always kind of interesting and funny about Aerosmith is, you know, when you grow up when we did, which we were both born in 1980 and your true introduction to Aerosmith is via MTV and it's, you know, love in an elevator and it's uh, ragdoll and it's, you know, that stuff. Well, I didn't even realize that Aerosmith had this whole uh, catalog and career prior to that. I thought they were an 80s rock band. And what led me to that was actually through GNR Lies, which was the Guns N' Roses EP that had like some live crap and some like, you know, B-sides and whatever, and Patience and the acoustic stuff. And they do a cover of mama kin on gnr lies and i remember being like it's an awesome guns and roses song and our mom who used to hang out with like some like dudes that like played guitar and were musicians and stuff had this dude over a friend of hers that was a guitar player and i remember um he was a little bit older and he had his guitar out and he started playing mama kin and I was like, oh, that's the Guns N' Roses song. Like, I love that song. And he's like, that's not Guns N' Roses. That's Aerosmith. I was like, Aerosmith? You mean like the like guy with the scarf who hops around and yells and screams? Like, no, that's not, that's not Aerosmith. I'm saying, like, it's Guns N' Roses, man. And then he's like, no. And he played me the original Mama Kid. And, and it's always funny to hear Steven Tyler, because this was before even realizing Dream On and some of these classic Aerosmith songs were them but it's funny hearing the way he sang originally uh and early in their career and then obviously what his voice developed into because it's completely different you know, it's uh, di- much- different band different c- completely different singer yeah. you don't even think it's steven tyler i remember hearing that first album yeah because make it's the opening track which is actually a killer song great song yeah and it, to- it, it if you told me it wasn't steven tyler i would have believed you 
Yeah, totally right. So gone is all the, you know, like all the like crazy crap that he developed later in his career. He was like, just like a soulful boogie rock singer, you know? Yeah, exactly. And and there weren't a lot of those harmonies, like 18 different layers and stuff that eventually came, but commercially worked to your point. But yeah, it was kind of an interesting way of discovering, you know, that, oh, Aerosmith had this whole other thing. Then you get into the the self-titled debut album and you get into make it and dream on and some of these other moments. And it's like, okay, I kind of understand, but it's a strange yet very successful and interesting. And and again, you have to respect, I've said it a million times on the old podcast here. You got to respect any band that finds a way to have a multi-decade operation. And these guys certainly have, I'm sure the, you know, twists and turns to where certain fans probably liked certain things more than others. And certainly got behind certain eras of the band more than others. So that's, uh, I want to hear more about the concert from your vantage point. So I'll throw it over to you, but that's my, uh, that's, those are my recollections of, uh, of this particular band. So what do you got now? Well, it was, it was the show that almost wasn't because this was like in June. It was right after school got out of 1993. I want to say palace of Auburn Hills. And so it was like spring out school was about to end. And my buddies and I ended up at the, you know, we were in middle school, but we ended up at the high school. I can't remember it was for maybe a music, like a band concert, something we were checking out at the local high school that we were eventually going to go to. And, um, well, we you, were, used, you used to comb the local high schools all the time. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've been, I've been combing the local high schools all day. <laughs> so it had to be a band concert because I was wearing a white shirt and black pants, which was the band uniform. So we were playing some kind of band concert at the high school and there were giant piles of dirt on the parking lot. And some friends and I thought it'd be a really stellar idea to just go out and like jump in this dirt and roll around in the dirt and play in the dirt. I can't, I can't recall if you were with us or not, but we were covered, just covered in dirt. It was like a disaster. My shirt was ruined. My pants were ruined. And we got picked up. And the person who picked us up was like, oh, I'm telling your dad about this. And, and they told our dad about this. He saw my clothes and he actually grounded me for the next week. And that included the Aerosmith concert. And he told me I was not going to be able to go to the Aerosmith show. <laughs> And I flipped because I had never seen Aerosmith. They were the biggest band of the year, pretty much. And it was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe I've misbehaved my way out of the Aerosmith show. So for the whole week, I like did everything I could to get back in the good graces. I wrote him a note. I I remember sending him money. I was trying to do whatever I could to show contrition. So I sent him an envelope of money and I didn't know you said him money. That's I great. did. I wrote him this note. It was like this big dramatic deal. And finally, like two days before he sat me down and said, okay, what this you did was been a, this may have been a like impossible instance where like you got in trouble and I didn't. Yeah, it could have been, which never happened. And he, you know, your punishments usually were better followed through. He, he yeah. sat me down a couple of days before and said, okay, you know, it's the end of the school year. I'm, you know, what you did was stupid, but um, you can go to the show. And I just was in seventh heaven. So I had worked really hard to get to this concert. You know, I'd just figuratively, like I'd gone through a lot to get there. Yeah. And the thing I remember the most about the show was that, you know, you and I were obsessively interested in live music. 
it was our passion to go see bands. It was our passion to have the lights go down and the band hit the stage and to play a great opening song. And I mean, we just, we lived to go to concerts and luckily we were able to go to so many of them. And by this time, I wouldn't say we had high expectations, but I would say we kind of knew like what we would expect from a band. We knew what we would expect from a show. The thing I remember most about this show was it was the first experience I ever had where I realized, well, this band really is just going through the motions. There was a real lack of emotional connection between the band and the audience. It was everything seems so functional. It seems so pre-programmed. It seems so unorganic. And I noticed that at 13 and I didn't like it. You know, I had no problem with production. What I had a problem with was feeling like the band was just going through some sort of pre-scripted activity to make money. Yeah. And it's amazing that I was able to take that away from this show and this tour because many longtime Aerosmith fans probably took the exact same feeling from this album and the previous two. The, the polish that is on this record came through in a live performance that I thought was very substandard and hard to connect with and, and, and not very memorable. And that's a big takeaway from that era. In the show, almost, I wouldn't say destroyed, but it like I never got into Aerosmith that much after that. You know, it was like the live show just kind of told me like, this is not a band you're going to really love. Go find something else to, to get into. You know, it's a great recollection. And now that you mention it, um, I remember, I remember that it was towards the end of the show and they were playing, maybe it was an encore. I don't know. And they were playing the train kept rolling song. And I remember distinctly, which was very difficult to your point at this time during any concert, even if a band we didn't like, I remember distinctly being bored. Yes. You know? Yes. It was like, okay. Not like, engaged. Not yeah. engaged. It's the best it way like, I could say it. Yeah. It's like, I get it. And I mean, we, and we were 13. So yeah, that, that's, that's a very, very well put. And I, I'm now taking myself back a little bit to, uh, to that show. And you're exactly right. It was a very early and very rare example of being at a rock show and definitely not feeling it. Yeah. And the reason we weren't feeling it T is exactly what we'll dive into in the track by track, which is that we didn't see Aerosmith, the band, we saw Aerosmith, the business. This was not a band anymore. This was a business that would be proven so much in the ensuing couple of decades, you know, as they had problems, you know, legal problems, personnel problems. I mean, yep. Steven Tyler left the band or Joe Perry left the, I mean, all this crap. It's like they were a business. And by Get a Grip, while there's music on this album that certainly resonated, and in some cases is going to last a long time, this was not a band. This was a business. Are you ready to drop the needle, T? Yeah, let's roll, buddy. All right, man. Let's go track by track. Let's do it. The album starts with intro, which as I already phonetically tried to describe as for about what two minutes it's not not like 20 seconds it's oh, it's, is it? it's not even it, it, it's it's super random <laughs> not <laughs> not particularly necessary but hey but it does lead into the opening track which is also the opening song at said show get a grip kicks off with eat the rich
ignoring the obvious response to this song, which is a bunch of multi, multi, multi millionaires singing about eating the rich. And the irony of that, if you want to use the word irony, could also be a little bit um, pathetic. <laughs> Musically, it's really a kick-ass song. I mean, it starts off with syncopated dun, 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 dun. The thing that's always disappointing to me is the guitar riff that guides the intro. And I think they reprise it in the middle of the song is a really cool riff. You know, but the song doesn't really use that for the rest of it. It, it. it goes into this very smoothly produced, but very driving rock song that was a good opener, uh, not only for the album, but for the show. And, um, you know, this is an, this is an Aerosmith song. This is absolutely one that you would file under Aerosmith album. It's got a little bit of the boogie woogie uh, guitars to it. It drives along credit Joey Kramer, who's not known as one of the great drummers of all time for putting together a pretty solid backbeat here. Some interesting things during the pre-chorus. And uh, I think Eat the Rich is a solid rocking Aerosmith song team. Yeah, yeah, I would agree, man. Um, you know, I think that they were probably looking to sort of um, come out pretty hot. And, you know, this one, so part of the, each, each of these songs is going to have a little bit of a story in terms of collaboration more often than not. And this is uh, uh, James Valance, who, you know, wrote for Brian Adams and did a lot of work with Mutt Lang. And again, part of the theme here is hired help. Uh, and part of the theme here is bringing in professional songwriters and sort of think tank in many instances. We'll find as we go on that that these are all supported in some way. You know, I, I think it's good. It's a good kickoff to the record. It was always a good kickoff to their live show. Um, and again, I think uh, one of the things we won't have to worry about much talking through this today is... Uh, you know, everything was pretty nicely calculated. So, um, you know, probably overcalculated, but I think they knew exactly what they wanted out of this uh, intro and in this first track. And, and I think they did it. Track three, I, I'm still shocked it wasn't titled Skin and Bones, but it's the title track of the album, Get a Grip. It's an Aerosmith song, without question. Nice little slide guitar riff going on. You know, Joe Perry does have some trademark guitar tones and things that he does. That comes through here. The band sounds cohesive. It's got a nice little hook to it. I'm sure Valance helped with that. Yeah. I remember at the show, you talked about Mike G singing along with album tracks. This was one of them. <laughs> it took me a while to remember to realize that this was actually on Get a Grip, which is ironic because it's called Get a Grip. But I remember, you know, in retrospect, listening, I'm thinking, oh yeah, this is this is on this record, you know, which is kind of an interesting aspect of it. But this guy wrote "Run to You" and many others for for Brian Adams. I mean, so the polish that you're hearing, and who knows who really kind of contributed the performances here. Because I, I do think, uh, to your point, this record had one goal and one goal only, which was rebuild the Aerosmith brand and find a new audience for them. 
So, yeah, I think I think the next track after this is probably the most Aerosmith, if you will, in terms of composition and execution. So Get a Grip sort of is, but you've still got a lot of Jim Valance there. And as we go on, every song will have its own uh, identity in terms of who collaborated with Tyler and Perry, which pretty much in every instance there was that. And I don't think it's rebuild. T. I think it's expand. I mean, Permanent Vacation and Pump rebuilt the Aerosmith audience. You know, think about it. You know. Permanent Vacation had, what was the ballad on there? Uh, Angel. You know, that was a big song. Great a big song. MTV song. Yeah. I think that was another Desmond Child song, actually. <laughs> <laughs> sure was. So th- this wasn't about rebuilding. This was about expansion, like global expansion of business, right? Like market share, you know, those kind of things, right? Yep. Yep. T, the next song, track four. This one is an Aerosmith song. <laughs> Fever. Me fever sounds like it could come from Done with Mirrors or Night in the Ruts or you know some of these kind of middle era forgotten Aerosmith albums. It's a Tyler Perry composition. Tyler Perry, that's kind of funny. Not, not the, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, By the way, have you ever seen a Tyler Perry um, movie or show? I don't. I don't know if I could pick him out out of a lineup. No, I know. Yeah, no, I've not. But I know there are big fans, people who really oh, support. Sure. The, the work of Tyler Perry. He's like a goofy kind of uh, family comedy type guy, right? Isn't that his deal? I think what I know about him is I think he's known for playing lots of characters, including like female characters. Oh, like a Flip Wilson kind of thing. Was it Med- Med- Medina? What was his? He had a character, like a female character that he played. Medin- Medina? Flip Wilson? It was Geraldine. No, no, no. Tyler Perry. Yeah, oh, Tyler Perry. Oh, I'm not sure. Oh, okay. I think he had like a trademark female character that he would. Play, oh, I think. gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is the boogie woogie up-tempo Aerosmith, right? I mean, you could find this on really 10 previous albums in various spots, but certainly that kind of middle era that's really forgotten about with Aerosmith. It sounds like something off of that, you know? It, yeah, it does. Cause, cause the, those two guys wrote it, you know? So, so this is. I don't know. Is it the only example? I guess we'll, we'll get to it, but a rare, if not the only example of a, you know, Tyler Perry, uh, there you go. Composition. Um, and, and, and you can hear it, right. You can hear it. It's a, you know, pretty straightforward, pretty stripped down. Um, it was a good live song. I remember it was kind of one that got, you know, it, it wasn't a fan favorite, but it was one that they pulled off nicely and chugged along well. And Hey, I, you know, I guess one of the, it's important to the album in that it's a rare instance where it was written by the band. Definitely chugs along. It doesn't have a lot of groove to it, but you know, some of that's rhythm section stuff. I mean, the Aerosmith, like I said, was not known for a uh, sterling rhythm section. Well, I sure. do want to talk about that for a second because uh, obviously getting the drummer take from you on um, what's the guy's name again. I always forget his name. Joey Kramer. Joey Kramer. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, he's kind of the Charlie Watts modern day it's not like he's a bad drummer and he's probably good for the band but also very immemorable uh what, what's your drummer's take on him i would just say limiting and limited yeah you know he was limited in his talent and skill made the most of it of course did more than schmuck drummers like me will ever do in our life so gotta give him credit for that of course but limiting in the sense that the band probably could only do so much with him you know, and, and you could see the drums are produced in such a programmed 
sort of way. You know, there's, there's no way these are like full song takes top to bottom. I'm sure. There was lots of punching in, punching out, you know, plugging in fills, things like perhaps that. even some other people playing the drums. Uh, if I had to guess. You never know. Right. No, I don't think this band was above that. <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. Track five, maybe the best song of the album living on the edge. It's a great middle right there. I'm glad you hit with some of that. The This song has a lot more to do with Gorky Park than it does Aerosmith. Big, giant kick drum, snare drum, backbeat. <laughs> the, um, the video you mentioned is important. That imagery at the beginning was certainly something that uh, got your attention. Oh, the ball cup? The ball cup, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but it, it's got adventure to it, even though it's not kind of an up-tempo rocker. It's got a deep, deep, deep groove to it. And um, I just remember how dark this song was for Aerosmith. You know, your, Aerosmith was synonymous at the time with kind of brighter things. If you look back at their catalog, they were exploring different territories that just didn't hit commercially. But this song is, was the darkest commercial single to date for Aerosmith, which, which fit in well in the grunge time. You, know, you have to remember that Nirvana... Pearl Jam and Soundgarden were hitting some of their respective peaks during this time. And Aerosmith, a band like Aerosmith had to find its place. This song helped with that because it really fit in well with the grunge scene at the time. Yeah. I think I think it's a good point as far as its tone. I mean, it's Mark Hudson. So another pro, uh, he worked with Alice Cooper. He worked with Bon Jovi a lot. Um, and, uh, nubs, let me do a little, let me do a little Kevin Bacon action here. I'm going to tie this back to something that you, uh, that you loved. Mark Hudson had this really tight relationship with Ringo Starr and, you know, wrote a bunch of his songs and produced a bunch of his songs and stuff. They actually formed a record label at one point and didn't release a, a ton of material on it. I don't think it was a particularly successful venture. And, uh, but they released an album by a guy named Liam Lynch. Do you know who Liam Lynch is? I do not. No, who's Liam Lynch? Liam Lynch was the creator of the Syphil and Ollie show. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently wow. he, did a, he did a music album on these guys label, but I saw Syphil and Ollie. I was like, oh, that's an old, that's an old nubs favorite, you know? Um, great show. Great. Show. Way, way ahead of its time show. Uh, the Syphil and Ollie show. Syphil and Ollie. Syphil and Ollie show. show. Rock. Yeah. Rock. Rock. Yeah. <laughs> Way, way ahead of its time in, in terms of minimalism and, and tempo and humor and, and space and these type of things. The producer, but, Chester. Remember Chester? Chester, yeah. So that that came later, right? That was, was that some, you watched that in college, I think. Wasn't that sort of late 90s? Uh, yeah, it'd be late show? high school, college. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So anyway. Mark Hudson was like the, he was like Ringo Starr's like big time collaborator. He was in, a, he like front, like basically led the all-star band from a musical perspective. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have a well, couple of those albums. Yeah. Well, that was the most interesting thing to me. I've n- I never liked the song. So there you go. You didn't like living on the edge. No. Oh, really? Yeah. Never, oh, okay. never did. Never did. I, I I mean, it's not a bad song. It's very well produced, very well produced and, and well composed, but no, nah, never, never did it for me. 
I think it's aged really well. You know, this yeah. is one on the album that I listened to now. I like it. I like it even more now than I did back in the day. I think that's true. It's it's one that, you know, in, in, in going, going through this album, which I hadn't in many, many, many years, um, it was kind of like, okay, yeah, I get it. I mean, I certainly understand why it was a um, big hit and why it's a good song. I just, it never, never perked me up, you know. <laughs> never led you to do any ball cupping. No, it didn't. It, yeah, it really, it really did. It hasn't. Not yet, at least. Not yet. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, track six: the return of Desmond Child to the fold before flesh. Flesh. An Aerosmith song, but barely. But some cool guitar work, I will say that. And I like the way the song sounds. I think it's got a nice production to it. Yeah, I think Desmond Child probably had this in his bottom drawer. And he took good care of these guys. I mean, he gave them Dude Looks Like a Lady. He gave them Angel. He gave them What It Takes. I mean, which are probably a couple of Aerosmith's best songs. Um, but, you know. I mean, Correction, What It Takes is Aerosmith's best song. Yeah, I would agree there. It's so good, dude. I would agree there. You know, he wrote Just Like Jesse James, which is a great share song. I mentioned the rat song earlier. He wrote uh, Bad Medicine, Born to Be My Baby, great Bon Jovi songs. And then, of course, he's probably still making tons of money every Sunday night during football because he wrote I uh, Hate Myself for Loving You by Joan Jett. So, ah. um, so Desmond Child knew what he was doing. I don't think this was probably his finest moment, but I'm sure Aerosmith was happy to accept uh this song that he gave to them and you know it's it's a fairly immemorable uh, moment here on the middle of the record and but you know probably for for desmond child a throwaway it's a certain lieu of a top five because you know i, I have a feeling a lot of your top fives would be on this album but let's just do a loose top five like what are some aerosmith songs that you really 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 like like things that are in your playlist or things that you like you know would listen to regularly yeah that you really appreciate and enjoy what, what yeah. would be on your list well thanks for all the preparation nubs you know on this i would have uh you know well, why start now yeah. why would we start <laughs> yeah, right. prepping exactly. for the show now exactly. exactly. no if we were to kind of loosely uh you know i think make it you mentioned earlier is a really good aerosmith song i think i mean dream on is really good you know dream on's an anthem and it's a special, it's one of the best, you know, sort of classic rock or whatever type songs of the seventies. It's really, really fantastic. Um, and one that probably, I don't know how much it was appreciated at the time, but I think that's a timeless song. I think it's a really, really good song. Uh, Angel is excellent. We should talk about the ones we hate too. Um, and uh, Ragdoll, I think is really good, really unique and, and good song with that kind of cool groove and that sort of country twang to it. Janie's Got a Gun, I think is really good and, and very timeless and a very deep song musically that, I, that I've always liked. Uh, there's a couple on here that we'll, we'll get to them, but other than that, I didn't, I mean, I didn't really like their later stuff as much. The, uh, the ballad from Armageddon, I don't want to miss a thing was pretty good, but they didn't write that or anything that was sort of a made for made for movie thing, but I, I think it's a good song. So uh, yeah, those are the ones that probably stick out to me as good Aerosmith. Uh, do you want me to give some bad Aerosmith? <laughs> well, let's do our goods first. Cause I'm sure we would. 
I think we would agree on a lot of the bads, but a couple I would add, I, what it takes is probably my all time favorite. Second would probably be last child, which is off of rocks, which is the best Aerosmith album uh-huh. far and away. Um, just such a great groove. Uh-huh. It's like Aerosmith at its seventies best for sure. I, there was a song in 97 called hold in my soul. It was a ballad off, off of nine lives. A few things off of the album here that we'll, that we've already talked about and we'll talk about um, in terms of the permanent vacation pump era, there, there's not a whole lot that I, that I liked off of that. Um, you know, I, I definitely wasn't a, well, we'll get, get to the ones we hate, but, uh, yeah, th- those, th- they're just so polished and so pristine. I always liked make it. Yeah. I think dream on is amazing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So you want to get to the bad ones? Oh, I think it'll be more fun to talk about bad Aerosmith. Yeah. All right. Let's go back and forth. Let, let's just like <laughs> each name some of our bad Aerosmith songs. Okay. Just Aerosmith songs that we think are awful. That okay. suck. Do you want me All to right. start or you? Yeah, go ahead. You go ahead. Okay. First for me, super, super easy one. Sweet emotion. Yeah. Not great. So overrated. Yeah. If you take out the dinner, which is cool for about. 10 seconds. It is cool. Yeah. It's just, it's a dreadfully never ending song. Yeah. So that, no, that's one for me. I would agree. Uh, dude looks like a lady is horrendous. Awful. Like hard to listen to. Like, I don't understand how anyone like puts that on in the car and like leaves it on for longer than five seconds. Agreed. Yeah. You want to hear one of the worst songs ever made? Seriously? Yeah, sure. Pink. Pink's so bad. Like how was that ever even created? I don't know. Alone? And it, it was successful. Oh, it was, like it was successful. Big, and it, like, it was, I still can't understand why it was on the radio all the time. It's I know. like, who's, who's listening to this? I know. Terrible. It's terrible. Um, uh, love in an elevator is bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is bad. Love in an elevator is really bad. And the, yeah. just the whole presentation, the video, everything was just bad. Yeah. Uh, the other side sucks. Oh, you, can I say one more? That's good that I forgot about. Sure. You know, deuces are wild. Uh, yeah. I love yes. it because it Oh, that was from, um, was that from, uh, Beavis, Beavis and Butthead Butthead movie soundtrack? Yeah. Yeah. Great that's, song. I agree with you. Deuces Do- Deuces are wild. Really good. That would make my top five list. For yeah. That, sure. That's a good point. That's a, that's a very good one. Yeah. I'll tell you another one. I hate to. Yeah. Walk this way. Uh, terrible. Again, yeah. cool riff. Should have done it for yeah. like the collab with run DMC was cool and important, but yeah, I mean, the yeah, song. um, uh, falling in love is hard on the knees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God, that song was terrible. It's gotta be Desmond child. Gotta be. Um, jaded sucked. Yeah. Jaded was really bad. Yeah. See, jaded that's what sucked. I was saying to the top T like after get a grip. I mean, things went downhill pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, listen, it's Aerosmith and you gotta, you gotta sort of respect it, but God, there was a lot of terrible stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Trink up to roll and never really like that one. And, and, you know, even on these, these albums that, you know, pump and permanent vacation, I mean, some of the deep cuts are really bad too. Really. Oh bad. yeah. 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 And just to show T that like, we like not every seventies hit was bad. I do love back in the saddle. Yeah. I think back in the saddle is a really cool opener. Yeah. That'll work. Just like, it just rocks. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I'm good with that. Mama can, I don't like you either. <laughs> I respect uh, that. Steven Jolly wrote it. Mamakin's cool. It's a good rock and roll song. I mean, it's yeah. not like amazing or anything, but the Guns N' Roses version is way better. Yes. <laughs> that cowbell. And Izzy's just. I mean, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, that's a good call for sure. All right. Good call. Good call. All 
All right, track seven, written by Joe Perry, and that is Walk On Down. All right, now I'm going to tell you, I love Walk On Down because I don't think we've ever talked about this. I love the Joe Perry project. Oh, really? The, in this, so in college, when I started buying vinyl again, uh-huh. and, and this is like before vinyl became cool again. Right. So I was buying records at a at Columbus, Ohio record shops for like 50 cents, a dollar each in, in really good shape. So I would just buy everything. I mean, this is where I really built up my ridiculous collection that I've since downsized quite a bit. And, and like, so I would just be in the record shop and just be like, oh, the Joe Perry project. Like I'd want, I've always wanted to hear this. I've wanted to hear what does it sound like when Joe Perry like fronts a band? Yeah. And Walk On Down gives us a chance to not only hear his songwriting, but his, his lead vocals. But like, t- I, t- I, t- let's just do this, for example. Pull up Joe Perry project discount dogs. Okay. Just pull up that song and play a clip. And you tell me that this song doesn't just absolutely kick ass. You've probably never heard it before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here we Is go. That, okay. Discount dogs, man. Jam it. <laughs> yeah, baby. When did this come out? Is this old? Oh, okay. 78 or 80? Something like that. Yeah. Right? I love it. Right? So, wait, the Joe Perry project started like early, huh? I thought it was like a, something that happened much later. I think the first album was in 78 or 80, like 79, 80, something like that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, it was like, it was like more of a early eighties. I like Joe Perry. I've always liked Joe Perry. I, th- I think he's I know. I like, know. I mean, he looks amazing still. He's, he plays guitar in a very cool, uh, kind of sexy, you know, feel based kind of sexy way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge Joe Perry fan and I really don't like Steven Tyler. So I always feel right. like. And remember Joe Perry left the band. This yeah, is and the it, early eighties. He was not in Aerosmith and it didn't work anymore. Exactly. It didn't work anymore. And, 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 uh, you know, so I do think that there's a little bit of a, I don't think the two guys like each other very much from what, you know, you can tell, but yeah, I think they hate each other. I think it's one of those deals where, you know, they, they need one another. I think Steven Tyler needs Joe Perry more than he probably understands. You know, it's a but, business relationship to you. you know? Indeed. Indeed. But yeah, walk on down. It just, it, to me, it's just a Joe Perry project song. You know, he's lead yeah. singing. I think it rocks, man. I love walk on down. Yeah. It's cool. I think it's good too. And I think it's good that it's his and didn't need the think tank and didn't need the uh, additional songwriting support. And it's not only, uh, you know, interesting because it's a Joe Perry song, but it's actually quite good. Absolutely. And speaking of quite good track eight, shut up and dance. Where 
did most people here shut up and dance? T, trivia question? Uh, I don't know. Was it in a movie? It was. If you want to call it a movie, which some people <laughs> wouldn't. Uh, one of the movie? worst sequels ever made. Uh, one of the worst sequels ever made. Basically the final scene of the movie. Uh, Back to the Future 3. No, but that is one of the worst sequels ever made. No, this is Wayne's World 2. Oh, okay. They finally put on the show. They put on the concert, you know, the whole, uh, and the concert kicks off with, Wayne's World 2 was on stage. Wayne's World 2 was bad, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was awful. Yeah. I think the song rocks, dude. I love it. Yeah, it's well, it's Tommy Shaw and Jack Blades. So, I mean, of course, of course, you're going to like it. And anyone who, has any rock and roll sense whatsoever will probably like it. I mean, it's, you, you can tell why they didn't want to have it be a stick song. Cause it's anything but a stick song, but they kindly loaned it to, um, to the Aerosmith guys. And I think they perform it well, but yeah, there's, there's a reason this is good and it's not really anything to do with Steven Tyler or Joe Perry. I think, well, I, you know, it was, it was co-written. Right. So, I mean, like I, I think mm-hmm. Joe Perry probably they wrote, were, they were all quote unquote, co-written so who knows what that means in every case but you know yeah i mean i've listened to a lot of sticks and quite a bit of night ranger that does sound like a joe perry riff do, 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 do. i mean that now i think jack blades the time Shaw came along and probably completely rearranged the song and probably contributed some more stuff but i don't know i, I wouldn't be shocked if that was actually joe perry's riff guess we'll never know <laughs> we'll never know i'll sure. t- i'll take the under <laughs> alicia silverstone t Best nineties hottie ever. <laughs> uh, she's up there, man. She's in her, in her prime. Uh, yeah. In these videos, she's pretty hot. Yeah. No doubt. Maybe only a couple more come to mind for me. Uh, Sandra Pollock. Yeah. Nineties. Sa- yeah. Sandy. Yeah. Gina yeah. Gershon. Good Lord. Yeah. Nineties hottie. Um, does Cindy Crawford count? Of course. She was eighties more eighties. Yeah. No, I know. I think she's nineties for sure. I mean, you had the poster of her in her wall. I did. I did. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Alicia Silverstone was pretty, pretty good. Not a great, uh, actress. Well, but she was brilliant. And clueless. I just don't know how much acting she was doing. Yeah. Cl- clueless was a good movie. The crush <laughs> was scary. I guess she did play a pretty good, maybe she was a good actress because in the crush, she was <laughs> kind of scary and she was like a villain stalker and she actually played it pretty well. If you're going to connect with high school kids, which this album and those videos certainly did, they did create, you know, one of the, the, the kind of most notable consistent actress sort of deals in a music video. They sort of set the stage for that. And the first one was track nine. And that is the mega, mega, mega hit crying. Try and separate the composition from the production. Right. The production on this song is ludicrous. 
Now, I mean that in a good way. I mean, it sounded amazing on the radio. It came through brilliantly on a TV when you were watching the MTV video. But but if you really listen to it, I mean, the the production on here is absurd. Yeah, I mean, so (laughs) Get a Grip is not an album with songs on it that are like you could play acoustically. You know, I mean, right. and this and this is one. If you played crying acoustically, people would be bored after a minute and a half. But um, and this is Taylor Rhodes, you know, who was a Nashville sort of country rock crossover type producer and composer who was a pro, obviously. And there is a lot there are a lot of Nashville production elements to this in terms of the uh, rhythms in terms of the, um, sort of sonic ins and outs in terms of the harmonies. Um, in a lot of ways it's produced like a country song. Um, in addition to being produced like a really thick rock song. So yeah, you're exactly right. It's not about the composition at all. I mean, it's a very straightforward, rather boring rock progression and vocal line, but when you build on it and you get this many production hands on it and you do it on a song that was able to be simple, but create a lot of dynamics, I think it really worked. It's a really good listen. I mean, even, you know, and and I actually didn't love it at first, but within the last like 10, 15 years, it's one of those where um, it's like, wow, this song's really good. And it's not necessarily because it's so brilliantly written. It's because it was so brilliantly executed. Now, Taylor Rhodes wrote uh, a, a, some great rock songs and some great pop songs. Um, there's a song called Cold Blood by Kicks, which is a really good hair metal song. Um, Back on Earth by Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Rhodes co-wrote. Uh, Favorite is, Ozzy song, by the way. Yeah, which is an awesome Ozzy track. And then a really good song by Celine Dion called Where Does My Heart Beat Now? So, you know, this oh, is Oh, man. Where does my heart beat now? Where is the sun that only echoes through the night? Yeah. I would I mean, love to karaoke that. It wasn't so damn hard to sing. Yeah, it's up there. But, uh, you know, so, I mean, listen, it's the same same theme throughout this deal where you've got a lot of things that sort of are working together to create something that's really well executed well produced crying is no exception but i do think particularly compared to some of the other songs on here that i don't think hold up as well i I think this is a song that holds up nicely and it's really because of the production late bloomer for me hated it at first hated it for years now love it they appreciate it for what it is yeah production's a key part of that especially those last couple of minutes like the last minute and a half two minutes are just really good yeah, and even it, the harmonica thing is cool. It works, I know, I know. you know, it's, it's ridiculous, really but it's, it's cool. I mean, <laughs> it's a very tasty production. Let me take you through the video real quick. Okay. Uh, Alicia Silverstone. <laughs> You're going to take us. Th- this is the cliff notes, the plot. You're going to yeah, take us through the plot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Ready? Alicia Silverstone, uh, asshole boyfriend. They have a, a fight falling out. This fight leads Alicia Silverstone to find herself mm-hmm. as symbolized by the most famous navel piercing in the history of navel piercings. Hmm. So she gets her belly button pierced. Right. And, uh, you know, she's finding herself, finding trouble, you know, rebellion. Does this one have Liv Tyler in it as well? No, I think that's the other one. 
That's the other one. Alicia Silverstone, you know, continues to wreak havoc because now she's got a belly button ring. So, you know, nothing says rebellion more than that in 1993. And so Silverstone goes to a, uh, a bridge where her ex-boyfriend and seemingly, um, you know, family and friends seem to find her. And it looks like she's contemplating jumping off the bridge. And in a moment of sheer, you know, pinnacle, yeah, Alicia Silverstone jumps off the bridge to her impending death. Right. Except the fact that she had somehow tied her own bungee cord. Right. Onto her uh, ankles. Yeah. Or waist. I can't remember. And proceeded to uh, simply just bungee jump off of this bridge to which her ex-boyfriend leans over and sees this. And what does she do? Laughs and uh, proceeds to flip him off. She extends the bird. She gives him the bird. She was communicating. (laughs) Trading foreign relations. You know, the finger. Yes, I know the finger. Goose. Goose. Yeah. (laughs) I know the finger, Alicia. Yeah. And and what you know, there needs to be a an epilogue to this. I mean, she committed a federal crime. She jumped off a bridge, uh, seemingly a, a public bridge, and took all this time and effort from the police, only to, you know, really pay back her asshole boyfriend by simply giving him the bird. Hmm. That's it. That's the video. This video. Yeah. It's a timeless story, really. It had the minds and hearts of thirteen-year-olds all over the world. Yeah, well, minds and hearts and other other things and minds. other things for yeah. sure. And then the the band is interspliced into this, of course. Mm, so thank God, thank God, exactly, exactly. But no, it, it late bloomer. I love crying. It's come a long way since my sheer hatred of it in t- nineteen ninety three. Yep, agreed. Number ten, gotta love it. I don't even know what the hell they're trying to do here. You know, experiment with different rhythms. You know, everyone in the nineties had to do some sort of, Hey, let's do something tribal or something. You know what I mean? Um, I'm just not even sure where this song's going. I think it's a, a crappy album track. Yeah. They make this backbeat thing work on Ragdoll, which I think is a really good Aerosmith song. Um, and it's, I don't know. It's almost like they were trying to go for the same tempo and vibe and groove. And I don't know. It's, this is, uh, Mark Hudson again, you know, so, um, he gave him living on the edge and he gave him this. So I guess it's a, it's a wash, right? You got it. Track 11 is the second part of the crying, crazy, amazing trio. And that is crazy. You know, it's got basically the same kind of waltzy tempo as crying, just without any of the force that crying had. I, I never understood why this song was a hit. I thought the chorus was irritating. I thought the verses were incredibly boring. It just, I, I, I honestly, I think it was, I think it was a hit because Alicia Silverstone and Liv Tyler were in the video and it was part of this visual series around these songs. I mean, I, you know, there it's not, it's a terrible song and it's, uh, 
it lacks feel it lacks dynamics um you know it's awful so i i don't i don't get I mean, it's a desmond child song and you know this is what led to the crazy crying amazing crazy crying sketch that we've referenced um and i think this song more than anything is the one that is the most laughable in that way because it doesn't really go anywhere it it does get to be pretty repetitive so uh, hey listen they they had a, but they did they, skinny dip in the video yeah and i mean that, they, <laughs> i mean to your point mtv created this you know I, it was a total video creation and listen, they got a lot of mileage out of this song somehow. And you know, they're smarter than we are apparently, but it, it's terrible. It's one of those moments where it's a little bit like the show that I described earlier, but this was one of those early times in my musical upbringing where I was like, Oh yeah, the public is kind of stupid about what's good and what's not good. You know, like that, that but, song like this being a hit was just I astounding agree, to me. I agree with you, man. But like, when have you ever heard anyone ever say like, oh God, I love that song Crazy by Aerosmith. It's so right, good. Right. I've never heard anyone, even, even people that have the worst musical taste of all time. I have never heard anyone say that they love that song. So I think it was just a movie, you know, with a song behind it that sort of got some mtv airtime but i i mean have you i've i've never no. heard anyone say they like that song no it's a great point it's a very very good point whereas crying you certainly heard that. of course you know that yeah, of course. I mean, that song I like has crying. lasted of yeah, course for yeah. sure my right, track 12 as we near the end of i feel like i need a shower after that one <laughs> yeah totally, totally. <laughs> well you might get a little musical cleansing because lenny kravitz joins the fold here for lineup <laughs> Hey, isn't this from uh, Ace Ventura? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. Were you going to say that? No. No, but I, I, I was remember- I, I was like, this wasn't a movie. I just, I just remembered that. I think it was during the like closing credits or something, maybe, of, of Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you're right. If it wasn't that, it was something like it. But yeah. Which is the second best song in Ace Ventura. What's the first best? Cannibal Corpse, Hammer Smashed Face. Hammer Smashed Face, that's right. <laughs> well done. Dun, 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 I mean, Cannibal Corpse is doing some cool stuff. That that oh, song's no a question. masterpiece. It yeah, really it's is. really good. The last actual song on the album and the conclusion of the Crying Crazy Amazing Trio. And that is amazing. Okay, if you're going to pick that clip, then you can rationalize it as effective because that's the conclusion is pretty sweet. I mean, it builds and builds, but you got to go through basically four minutes of nonsense to get there. I could not disagree with you anymore. I think Amazing's probably one of Aerosmith's best songs. Um, and I, I like the buildup, I think the choruses really work. I think the dynamics are great. You feel like you're building towards something and then you get it. So 
no man i i think that i think this is a incredible closer to this record and certainly you know the back half of the song is the pinnacle but i really like what it does leading up to it and uh and the choruses have space you know where joe perry kind of fills in with that guitar lick um to sort of wrap up each segment of the chorus it's layered really well it's produced really well um so well man i i think and this is richard supa who also co-wrote back on earth by ozzy unfortunately he co-wrote pink by aerosmith which would come later which is awful um and you mentioned don henley from the onset this is where i'm not sure exactly where it's so hard there's so many voices but this is where you're hearing his voice somewhere in there yeah hearing being a loose term i i don't i have a hard time finding it yeah yeah but um no dude i i think amazing is a top five aerosmith song in a really really you know for all the shenanigans that there is on this record and all of the you know things that we've talked about in terms of who's contributing and who's not this is a moment to me that really wraps it up in a bow not just appropriately but in a way that's really memorable so i'm a i'm a huge fan of amazing i'm glad you like it man i think it's pretty amazing do you like it better than crying uh oh yeah i mean it's a much better song obviously and it's much more epic um they're two they're two totally different songs right crying is it's kind of a um short and tight um waltzy sort of sing along uh whereas amazing is a bit more of an epic and a bit more mid-tempo they both though have the dynamics i think that's the key and obviously the production's so big as part of this but um amazing is a better song you know but they're so different it's kind of hard to compare so similar to you know get a grip kind of opens with this quote-unquote intro and then it closes with basically like a two-minute instrumental song which is a boogeyman. So let's run that too. I mean, it's sort of unnecessary, right? I mean, to your point about amazing and, and I'm not a fan of it, but it, it would have concluded the album in a really grand way. Yeah. And then they yeah. throw this weird thing at the end, you know, I don't get it. Yeah. I agree with you. I mean, I think if, if you wanted to do this, put it before amazing, you know, and have it be kind of a little bit of a setup and a little bit of a prologue to something that's really climactic, you know, to close it out. And plus he does the speech at the end of him. He says, you know, from all of us to Aerosmith to all of you, um, which, you know, whatever, but kind of like you, <laughs> you feel like it's done. And then it's like, then there's this like aftermath. So yeah, I, I think if you, if they wanted it in there bad enough, put it before amazing and then close it up for sure. All right. See, well that wraps up 1993's get a grip. So let's have our, traditional discussion here two twins in an album and just ask you does get a grip hold up um yeah i mean kind of i I think that um there's a few anthems on here that are going to be timeless the the production is so layered and so slick that um i mean who hell who knows maybe maybe today's audience would jive right with that because everything right now is so produced and slick um it, it was cool that they decided to kind of come out with their next um chapter of the band i think that that is was healthy at the time and it was well executed and it worked um and they were coming off some things that were a bit more fun and and i think that that worked and they had a lot of help on that too um so you know again i it's hard to sit here and say how amazing 
no pun intended, this band is when they had so much help. And that wasn't just on Get a Grip. That was really their whole career. You know, I think one of the things that's overlooked about Aerosmith is that they never really had an album except for their early work that like was just executed by them as a band without a lot of production or a lot of songwriting support. And so I think it's hard to like give them too much credit. And I think a lot of people have always wondered, well, you know, what's your problem with Aerosmith or why you hacking on Aerosmith? And a lot of it's because, well, they, they were a very, and this is kind of to your point, they were just a very um, calculated produced, you know, commercial seeking group. And Hey, that's okay. You know, you you can be unapologetic about that. It worked. They've toured the world and they've played arenas and stadiums and, you know, doofuses like us never will do that. But I, I think that, you know, it sounds nineties. There are a couple moments here that are good. There are several moments that are bad. I don't think it holds up. I don't think it was actually that important of a record. I don't think it really matters in terms of you know, longevity or in terms of its place, you don't really hear a lot of people citing it as a classic. You do hear people saying that it was memorable and important and something that sticks out. Um, and I think that's, that's, I think that's get a grip's place is that it was what it was. It did what it wanted to do and had to do. And it's not something that's going to be very renowned or, or I think critically appreciated, nor probably should it be in most cases. So how about you, Nub? Did it, uh, did it hold up and does it matter? No, but I do think the production is a nice timepiece, you know, because it, the, the contradictions of this album do make it interesting. It's a seventies band who revived in the eighties, creating an album in the nineties with nineties production. So you, you just have these different eras sort of clashing together. It doesn't hold up because today's audience just doesn't crave this type of thing. You know, in, in just a few short years later, you'd have the white stripes and you'd have these bands coming along to rewrite what, what rock and roll is supposed to sound like. And we've sort of never really gotten back to the, the highly polished rock band. You know, even nowadays, you know, Nickelback has gotten more polished over time, but they're one of the more popular rock bands that's still active today. And, and they're, original stuff was, was a lot, you know, more organic. Foo Fighters have remained quite organic, maybe with the exception of their last album, but you know, they're not dabbling in this sort of high slick super production. So I, I just don't think rock and roll is supposed to sound like this to today's audience. I dig hearing it from a nineties perspective, just to hear just the extraordinary things that they were getting away with, you know, but no, it doesn't hold up. And, and it's not, what you want to listen to if you truly want to experience Aerosmith. There's good songs. I do think living on the edge holds up extremely well, but if you are telling a young listener about Aerosmith, the first thing you pull out is not going to be get a grip. It's going to be rocks. And, uh, and so, no, I, I don't think it holds up. I don't, but it sure was interesting to go back and listen to you top to bottom. Yeah. And, and as always interesting to hear your takes T and I appreciate them very much. Let's close out your takes with, the final cut on Get a Grip. So T is Get a Grip on the turntable. Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust or is it headed to the for sale bin? T, where you got it? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go collecting dust. It's very close to in this for sale bin. Very, very close. But there are moments here that have lived on and probably will live on for a long time. And, and you know, 
again, I, I think these pivot points for bands that have had multi-decade runs are always fascinating. And, and to some extent in musical history are, you know, noteworthy. So for those reasons, I'm going to barely eke it into collecting dust. Um, although I, you know, I don't have a need to own it, but I do see how somebody would based on nostalgia and based on, I mean, some of the moments and to your point, based on kind of the lush production and how at the time that was fairly interesting. And listen, there are a couple of really good moments here. I mean, amazing is really, really good. Um, crying's good. Eat the rich is good. You know, living on the edge. And you spoke highly of, I mean, there, there are moments here that are, that are certainly worth the while. So, you know, it's easy. It, it'd be very easy to just toss it in the for sale bin and, and, you know, just sort of hack on it. But I do think there's some some redeeming value to it. And I do think it was a important pivot point at an important stage for a band that whether we like it or not or care about it or not is still around to some extent in 2022, um, albeit in different form. But listen, these guys have figured out a way to build a, a rock and roll career for 50 years under the same brand under the same moniker and to your point at the beginning with the same lineup and there's something to be said for that and so i'm going to eke it into the collecting dust category for me what do you got buddy well it rarely happens but you and i are completely aligned on this i i think this album epitomizes the collecting dust category you know if if you were putting together together a time capsule musically of the early 1990s you had 10 albums to choose or you know, 15 albums to choose. I think this is in there. I really do. It's place in that era is, is significant. Yeah. But, you know, it, it doesn't hold up in today's standard from top to bottom in a way that would make it something you listen to a lot, but it should be part of a well-rounded collection. And every once in a while you pull it out and you say, Oh, there's some of these songs, you know, you know, very memorable. So I think it just like epitomizes collecting dust. But I think it's quintessentially 90s in a weird way, because most people think Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, you know, this album was right there commercially. It was right there with everything else that was going on in 1993. And sure, that, that gives it a really interesting place. And by the way, for the record, I think this is the first time we've ever done this. We have had back to back album episodes from the same year because Meatloaf was in 1993 as well. So there you go. How about that? And with Desmond Child running through. I mean, th That's this right. was not intentional, but it worked out that way. Nothing we do on Two Twins in an album is intentional. Nothing. No, that, that would involve uh, planning. Exactly. All right. Well, let's uh, close up shop the way we always do about this time, which is by checking in with old Dolores. And what is Eni Yo here? three songs what is ringing in your head uh let's go with uh, the first which is uh a uh song by the flies similar time period i think and this is got you where i want you that's a great song oh it's really really good it's one of those like you didn't realize at the time how good of a song it was and now you listen to it and it's like damn that was a really really strong song so that's uh that's ongoing for me. Uh, the second is um uh you know a nice um, love ballad. Well, it's actually a sad ballad by uh, Melissa Manchester, and that's uh, "Don't Cry Out Loud." 
don't cry out loud. Just keep it inside. Learn how to hide your feelings. I think I've had that on here. I think you've had that on here like twice. (laughs) Oh, I love that song. Okay, come on. And the third, actually, you mentioned Prince. Great call last round or last in your head. uh, Noting gold by Prince. And I uh, went back and I listened to the Emancipation record, which was a triple album. Of course, Prince always doing everything just a little bigger and a little more mightier than the than the rest. I actually think the best song on there is a cover of an awful Joan Osborne song called What If God Was One of Us or One of Us. But boy, Prince took it and made it a jam. And I love his version of it. So funny how you can take a song that sucks, attach Prince to it, and suddenly he finds a way to make it good. So One of Us by Prince. Check it out if you never heard it. Nubs, what do you got in your head? First for me, I listened to this a few times this past week, and that is uh, off the Sound City soundtrack. I think Dave Grohl, you know, referred to it live as the Sound City Players, but the, the you know the album where a bunch of people came together and recorded songs at Sound City, a song called Mantra, which had Trent Reznor, Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age, and Dave Grohl, and it is an incredible instrumental, incredible. It's just like captures yeah. the best of all three of those artists. It's far and away the best song yeah. that appeared on that particular song. Really, really good choice. That's a good one for sure. Second is. Uh, Song from Seven Dust's second album that is Denial. It's off the home record. Seven Dust, a band I've always really liked in the metal world. And third is off the Black Crows album Lions. Kind of hidden track near the end there. Not hidden track, but a buried track that's very, 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 very good. And that is Cosmic Friend. Yeah. Excellent. That that record rules. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> well, T, episode 72 is in the books. Thanks as always for your good perspective and uh, insights. And uh, I guess we'll see everybody again for episode 73. So we ask as always that you take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you next time here on Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.